0: Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and I'm here with my co host, Gavia Baker Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we will be discussing Netflix's Russian Doll, co-created by and starring Natasha Leone as Nadia, a software developer living in Manhattan who dies on the night of her 36th birthday and then keeps dying. Co-starring Charlie Barnett as Alan, a man Nadia encounters who also can't stop dying, and co-created by Amy Poehler and Leslie Headland, Russian Doll is TV's first bona fide hit of 2019 and is... As good as everybody on Twitter says it is, which surprised me, because that is really the case. And uh, I watched this after having seen all the hype on the internet and totally loved it and thought it was incredible. So that is a high endorsement for me. Um, I thought the show is great, and I'm excited to talk about it. So this is around four hours long. It's a half hour show. And... Uh, A lot of people were watching it kind of in one fell swoop, which I thought was really interesting. And it definitely contributed to the fact that everyone was talking about it in such an excited way on the internet, because it was very easy to consume all at once. And um, a lot of people were sort of comparing it to a four hour movie. I don't think it is exactly that. It It is not.
1: If you are, so most listeners will probably be like, why do you care about this terminology? But TV critics are, this is like a bugbear of TV critics because every like quote unquote serious showrunner is desperate to describe their work as like, oh, it's a 10 hour movie. And uh, occasionally some people do actually make a work of art, which is a TV series that feels like a six hour movie or literally they just release a six hour long movie. 99% of TV shows are not a fucking movie. It's a TV show. It's a different format. It's filmed in a different way. It is given to the audience in a different manner. This show is an eight-episode TV series. There are coherent, separate episodes which have storylines, and it fits together into one cohesive, beautiful whole, which is four hours long, which is a wonderful length for a TV show, and is not a movie. End right. Yes.
0: <laughs> I fully agree. I think the only thing I've seen that I really felt did feel like a film was the first season of Top of the Lake. Yeah. Which they, which they screened at film festivals
1: in a one Correct.
0: Correct. Um, but this definitely is television. It, the episodes end like episode endings. There's a sort of twist when um, Nadia, the main character meets this guy, Alan at the end of, I think the second episode. And it, you know, cuts to the end of the episode and it's, you know, it's a dramatic ending of the episode. But I do think it's interesting that everyone seems to be watching it all at once, which I did not do. Actually, I watched it over the course of several I mean, days. I, I watched didn't it have have in like time.
1: three settings.
0: Yeah. Um, and I think it's a testament to the fact that it does feel so unbelievably coherent, um, which historically has not really been the way that television works, right? But also
1: like now people are so acclimatised to the idea of Netflix marathon viewing, yes. to the extent where like everyone just has to watch like a new TV series when it arrives, on the weekend it arrives, which I don't really like. Like If I really like a TV show, generally I want to spread out a bit, and I'm now inured to the concept of having to do a huge marathon of a TV show I don't want to watch for work purposes. I'm just like, God, please let me watch Umbrella Academy over two weeks, as God had decided we should. <laughs>
0: Well, this is what's interesting. I am resistant to Netflix's programming for a variety of reasons. One of them being that I don't like Netflix as a company, but more because there's just so much of it all the time.
1: There's like a constant fire hose of new content being shot out. And like, I think something we discussed in the American Vandal episode we did is that some shows literally are incredibly badly suited to being released all at once or binge watching, because if American Vandal came out like one episode a week, then people would could have loads of fun kind of speculating about what's happening. I think that Russian Doll is completely reasonable to watch in one go, partly because it's literally four fucking hours long, but um, I would, I would prefer if at least some Netflix shows that did not kind of have their rights tied up in TV releases did come each week. I am very glad that Star Trek Discovery comes out once a week. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I am, broadly speaking, completely in favor of television released in a traditional way. I was just having a conversation with someone who had binge watched the entirety of Mad Men over a three month span. And my brain was like breaking at the thought of doing this because I watched the entirety of Mad Men over the course of seven years. (laughs) And it's just a completely different experience. And obviously, if you weren't doing it at the time, It's just not going to be how you watch something. But it is interesting to me to think about the different ways that we consume and process these things that are all considered TV and something like Mad Men, which is 80 episodes or something, versus this, which is four hours long, are playing with the form in such different ways. They're going to do a second season of this, I believe. I don't know if it's been officially greenlit, but they're definitely going to do it. And I find that insane. I don't understand. Yeah why you would do that, because the end of this, which we'll talk about at the end of the podcast, is so perfect. Like, it's just this sort of weird dichotomy, right, between indulging in what TV normally is, which is something that goes on for a long time, and then what TV now kind of has become, which is these contained dumps of content that come at you all in one go. And in this case, I think it actually just works incredibly well as this contained thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a show that feels like a miniseries. And there's also been quite a few prestige shows recently where it was like, they had one season, which is great. And there was literally no reason for a second season other than TV networks want the money. <laughs> um, yep. and it, which is why it was so refreshing when Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who created Killing Eve, um, with her original show Fleabag, which is kind of the thing that made her... I mean, I mean, famous, famous for Shona, but the thing that made her famous, um, she did one series and then stopped. And then a bunch of years later, she announced like last month that she's going to do a second season. And she was like, well, because I've now had an idea, like I never planned to continue it, but now I've had an idea. And I wish that more people were allowed to have that kind of level of creative freedom or they were curtailed from continuing their shows that should have been one season because, Killing Eve to a lesser extent than Russian Doll, I'm a bit concerned about there being a second season because the first season was so perfect and also Phoebe Waller-Bridge is no longer in charge of season two. So,
0: Yeah, I think that show's going to have a big tailspin. Um, big Little Lies is another one that the end of that is so clearly an ending and they decided to do a second season because it was like the most popular thing on television. It was full of famous people and so they kept going. This is such a clearly diagrammed story and it's so brilliantly constructed narratively basically the way this works if you haven't seen it yet and if you haven't watched it i would kind of recommend just going and watching the four hours and then coming back and listening to this but um this woman it's her 36th birthday she's clearly in this state of kind of malaise and having some existential issues in her life and she dies and then it's just a groundhog day situation so she wakes up and it's her birthday again it's the same scene and then she winds up going through this pattern and at first she is sort of confused and doesn't remember the fact that she has just died she's just sort of disoriented and then she does realize what's going on and she then she meets this other guy who is going through the same thing and then they have to kind of help each other get out of this situation.
1: Yep. And to be clear from that description, it kind of makes it sound like it's a sort of dreary midlife crisis show. It is very funny. Like, obviously, the people who are involved in this are kind of comedy drama people, so they know how to do jokes, but it's, like, just very well observed and kind of satirical. The main character played by Natasha Leon is this kind of aging hipster yuppie, so all of her friends are artists. Like, the party is full of kind of fun, quirkily dressed people who all have, like, they're all having like silly, weird conversations and um, eccentricities. And she is, like her job is that she works for like a video game company. She's a video game designer. She has very distinctive dress sense. She's a very sort of like wacky New York character with an accent and like a lot of kind of gesturing and drama and takes drugs all the time. But like, is also just a huge mess. It's just like, she's a really interesting sort of messy, funny character.
0: Well, She is just an incredible, incredible creation. Natasha Lyonne's performance is unbelievable. She is just a force in this show and obviously um, co-created it. She wrote some of the episodes. She directed the finale as well. One of the things about this show that I found so unbelievably refreshing was that the creative team, all the writers, all of the directors and the creators of the show who also wrote and directed part of it. Or everyone was a woman. And yet the show itself is not about, like, female issues, in quotes, right? But the fact that all of the people making the show were women, you can definitely kind of sense that, I think. Or at least that there was a significant female presence in the creative team. From that character because she feels so real but also very distinct from the way women are typically depicted
1: yeah she's not like oh she's turning 36 and this is midlife crisis time but at the same time the whole concept is about her being in this state where she's now old enough that she ought to be sort of mature and standing on her feet but she has too many issues and also like the way that like the film the, the way that the show kind of portrays people's sex lives um, like their friendships and stuff is very well observed and funny and insightful and not sexist, which is a rare combo.
0: <laughs> yes. And like she has some really great friends who don't have that much screen time because of the nature of the way the show is set up. Like she keeps going back to this party and then she rapidly leaves it because she's trying to figure out what's going on. But you'll see these people for sort of a brief, brief moments. And they feel also completely like real people. At least one, maybe two of them, I couldn't I don't remember exactly, um, are lesbians or bisexual. And she is depicted as showing, I think, only sexual interest in men, but also feels kind of not stereotypically feminine in her presentation in a way that I really enjoyed, and she's very brash and just like yeah. well, has Natasha Leon is kind
1: of like a low-key gay icon to the point where people are often surprised to hear that she is in real life straight. <laughs> yes. But um the co-showrunner, Leslie Headland is queer, and she is married to the actress who plays Lizzie, um, the woman with the short blonde hair.
0: Yeah, the whole show just has this kind of aura of nonconformity, I would say, on her side. And then the Alan side, the guy, lives in this apartment that is literally just like a sterile box. Everything is gray. He folds his shirts like too neatly. <laughs> And it's this really kind of depressing apartment that's very reflective of the sort of new developments. In I mean, even their York, ca- even their right?
1: pets, right? Because like one of the plot points in throughout the show, but especially in the first episode, is that um, Nadia Natasha, Leon's character, um, the reason why she dies at first is because she's looking for her cat, which is kind of the local deli cat, and she gets knocked over by a car. And this cat is sort of a recurring figure in the show, so it's this chaotic animal that doesn't really belong to her and kind of lives in the park and kind of lives in a shop and is always missing. And then Alan's pet is a fish that's in this perfectly clean rectangular blue lit um, tank that he feeds at the same time every day, <laughs> which I just really enjoyed as a detail.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's so, it's just perfect. I love that character. I think that actor Charlie Barnett, who I've never seen in anything, is did a brilliant job and part of what is so great about that character is that he's just deeply uncool in every way.
1: He's so uncool and he's very he's very neurotic and I think kind of the one of the interesting like obviously the show is about these two characters the narrative reason why they get locked into these loops of dying repeatedly is they both have really serious mental health issues to work through. And she was partly raised by a therapist and her mother had serious mental health issues. And she is like very well versed in the context of kind of having and handling mental illness, whether she's doing it like competently or not. Whereas Alan is like completely terrified of the idea of getting any kind of treatment, even though he clearly has like a ton of issues. But one of the kind of interesting things that I was thinking about when Morgan kind of was talking about the fact that it's like an all-female creative team is the way that sort of Alan is portrayed. Because the way he's introduced, obviously you're like, man, this guy is very uptight. Um, he's also very controlled but like on the surface he should be sort of like an attractive prospect because he's a good-looking young guy Um, he's really well put together he's clearly got some kind of good-ish job his apartment's really clean he like probably owns a bed that isn't a mattress on the floor like he's doing pretty well right but his storyline is about he is caught in this time loop day where he wants to propose to his girlfriend and then he discovers that not only does she not want to marry him, but she's been cheating on him with this like scuzzy guy who's her thesis supervisor at university or something. It's just this like pudgy middle-aged guy who's clearly a shithead. And like, first of all, you watch the show and you're like, yeah, I can kind of see why she's cheating on him and why she wants to get out of this relationship. And then once you see things a bit more from her perspective, it's like she's almost genuinely like frightened of what he'd do if they break up. They kind of go at that from an interesting angle because at first there was like no way you'd be like, oh, he seems like he might be dangerous or he might like harm himself. And then by the time you've known her for a few episodes, you're like, okay, yeah, I can see where she's coming from. Even though, like, you know, I'm not endorsing infidelity, but you can that kind of circle of relationships makes a lot of sense.
0: Yes. Well, there were a couple scenes with her that I found a bit odd actually. I thought this show was almost perfect, and then there were a couple of things that just struck me as a bit strange where they're talking about her as though she's done this, like, horrible thing. And obviously, again, like, cheating is bad. Or, like, he talks about her as though she lives this, like, unbelievably boring life and it's so terrible. And I just thought, I mean, she seems pretty sympathetic to me. <laughs> like, you seem like a nightmare to deal with. Uh... And it there was something about the way some of it was depicted that felt a little unfocused to me.
1: Oh, I didn't pick up on that. I just I was just like, yeah, I mean, I sympathize with him, but she she is more sympathetic.
0: I think this is a show that probably benefits hugely from a second viewing. We were talking about this before we started recording. Not in the sense that it wasn't great the first time. I totally loved it as you you can all tell from the way I'm talking about it, but there's so much going on that I think probably watching it again you pick up on more and I would be curious to rewatch those scenes because it did feel a bit funny to me but I did think one of the great things they did with him was make him just completely sexually unappealing even though he is objectively an attractive man which you were kind of alluding to mm-hmm. like he's just so and and you like him like I found him very likable and sympathetic even though he's a mess but it's just like oh no <laughs> Like, you have problems and you need to sort them out. Not, like, oh, he's cute. It's like, oh, dear. And also, like, the stuff he's wearing is not <laughs> flattering because he's so, you know, un- unhip that he's wearing, like, windbreakers and stuff. Like, that's not,
1: you know. Whereas, like, the awful guy who his girlfriend is cheating on him with he he was actually one of my favorite characters in the show because he's just so he's clearly such a shit like he's one of these characters who recurs in several of the loops because he's actually at Nadia's party and you hear him sort of like chatting up other women and like having these half of conversations where he's so like pretentious and obnoxious but so confident and clearly kind of a fucked up person but very good at like getting women into bed for one night stands and it's just like I understand the process that has occurred here.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, he was awful. I've seen that actor in a couple things before, and I couldn't remember him in those things. Like He was on The Nick, and I couldn't really remember his character. But I just recognized his face so immediately. and was like, oh, right, you're an asshole. And I thought, I don't know what this man is like in real life. Like, I, I hope he's a nice person, but he's just got an asshole face. He's really good at playing jerks. But that whole plot in general, even though I had some quibbles with it, I do think is, is handled very well because it could so easily have turned into, you know, this guy being really possessive or violent in a very unpleasant way. And, like, he's not handling the whole cheating stuff well. Like, he does show up at the guy's office and punch him in one of the loops. But it just felt like a more nuanced depiction of that kind of situation than you normally see. Again, I'm assuming because the women who wrote this have a more nuanced view of these things and didn't feel the compulsion to make the male character at the center of the story, like a macho guy. I did want to say about Nadia also, one of the things that makes her so appealing, I think certainly to me is that she just has this kind of old New York quality to her?
1: She really does. She seems like she seems like an a, an old man.
0: I think she has compared herself to Andrew Dice Clay, which is really beautiful um, and accurate. Uh, you don't hear that accent so much anymore, but it's very distinctive. It's and it's not just the accent; it's the mannerisms, it's the whole thing. And the show itself is very aware of its location. It takes place specifically around Tompkins Square Park in the East Village. And there have been some sort of fan theories that it's one of, it's an allegory for many things, which we'll discuss in more detail, but that one of the things it's an allegory for is the Tompkins Square Park riots which happened several decades ago. We'll link to like a Twitter thread about that. I do not know enough about the history to go into it in detail here. But I mean, that is that is a wild theory that I definitely do not understand. <laughs> Apparently, the they were like in interviews, they basically confirmed that this is the case. I mean,
1: I'm gonna read that thread once we're done recording this, because I mean I know nothing about that, and I'm also like, how can that be the case? <laughs> I
0: mean, it's pretty it's pretty convincing, particularly the Last shot of the show, which I won't See, I here, thought. But, um, okay.
1: Yeah, because I like yeah. I, the last shot of the show, I think, is a reference to a political art group, but I guess it's a spoiler for me to name the political art well, group. Well, it's
0: also a reference <laughs> to a, a thing that happened in this okay. historical event. Anyway, it's definitely engaging with the history of that specific neighborhood and gentrification in that area um Togman Square Park for those of you who don't know is where Rent for instance was set which is a story about gentrification although that's not the way that people think about it or perhaps that Jonathan Larson intended people to think about it when he was writing it but it used to be like a low-income neighborhood and now has been taken over by hipsters essentially is the short way of talking about it and there is a homeless character on the show who's kind of central to the story and there's just a it's just a kind of a lot of interesting stuff going on and um, the fact that it's set there and that there is so much intense sort of new yorkness to it i think makes it really interesting and also as a new yorker made it so satisfying for me to watch and it's been really interesting to be in new york talking to people about it because As I said at the top, this is a hit, like, for sure. Netflix doesn't often release numbers, so it's impossible to know exactly how many people are watching something. But certainly in New York, like, I have spoken to so many people who have watched this. Like, everyone I know has watched this show, basically. And everyone is obsessed with it. And specifically because it's so New York. Like, everyone says that exactly. They're like, it's so New York. I love it so much. And I was talking to someone who, you know, was saying, like, I hate everything set in New York, basically, because it feels so inaccurate and wrong. But like, this is the one thing I've seen in years that feels right. And I've, you know, something like Can You Ever Forgive Me, which we were just talking about, also, I think is a really good New York movie. But most things set in New York do indeed feel stupid. And inaccurate, including Leslie Headland's romantic comedy, Sleeping With Other People, which she made a few years ago that I watched the other day, which is unbelievably terrible. So I'm happy for her that she made this good thing because that's bad. And uh, (laughs) just bad in every way and also has that kind of fake New York thing going on. And this feels so much more specific and kind of grimy in a way that I just found so unbelievably satisfying and more true to the experience of actually living here unless you live in like a penthouse condo, which is what most of Manhattan is like now, sadly, but um, that's not my experience, so <laughs> so I liked this instead. I'll add on to that as a tag. The thing that has gone around Twitter as a meme is the fact that Natasha Leone says cockroach as cockroach. And everyone has been talking about that as well on the internet and in my real life. And it was just very beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to have come out of this television experience. And the way she says it is so distinctive and wonderful. And she's even tweeted about it. It's very good.
1: So like one of the ways to like really make something catch on is just to repeat it a ton of times. Yes. Which they do with Cockroach. They do with quite a few things in this show. And this is one of the rare shows where... When they repeat stuff, it's actually continues to be funny and interesting and like just good quality material rather than stuff just getting repeated and getting turned automatically into a meme, which includes the theme music, which I have actually just been listening to the fucking catchy theme song uh, because it's such a good choice. Like they have like Groundhog Day, kind of the main character, like Bill Murray's character wakes up every day with the same song in the radio. This show gives Nadia a theme song, which is uh, Gotta Get Up. And it just plays every time she like resets back to her life. And then Alan has a different piece of music, which is this kind of Beethoven classical piece of music that's very sort of formal, but also slightly chaotic. And um, the Gotta Get Up song is so good because it's just like this very sort of rhythmic, repetitive cheery music hall-ish sort of jangly song that's about sort of getting up and having to go to work in the morning and having to be responsible and she never is and she's caught in this constant loop of it and then the, the song sort of starts to fall apart halfway through but you hardly ever get to that point because it just resets.
0: Yeah it's a great choice and it's a really good song it's also, a great song just like and I, musically. I
1: looked up to see if someone had interviewed the creators about this because obviously they had because this show is being like bombarded with interview requests. And there is like a whole interview about how they managed to get the rights to this song because they had to like fucking negotiate. Like obviously you have to pay to include any piece of music in your show. And they had to negotiate with Harry Nielsen's like estate to have this song in the show. And they had to find the perfect balance for the maximum number of times they were allowed to Play the song versus how much <laughs> Netflix would give them the, bu- the budget to just pay over and over again to keep paying for this one song.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's well, what's funny is that it's actually like great exposure for that song. Yeah, exactly. Which, like, like, they, they, Harry Nelson's
1: people really had no idea what a hit this is gonna be. They should be no. paying the show. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> but yeah, the fact that it's such a good song makes it not annoying. Which is helpful. I can't remember what the song is in Groundhog Day, but it's definitely irritating. Well, I think the point of
1: the song in Groundhog Day is that it's meant to be irritating. Yes, exactly. It's like it's like the Bee Gees or something.
0: Yeah. Well, I know he hears like a weather report or something, or something about like baseball. I mean, it's he's going nuts. Whereas this it, it's meant to not drive you nuts. Because that would make the experience of watching the show irritating. Mm-hmm. Um so we were Talking about the Tompkins Square Park stuff a little bit, which, again, we'll link to something because I can't really speak to that in detail, but one of the things I think is so interesting about the show, actually the thing I think that makes it the most interesting, although it's enjoyable on its face because it's so funny and just emotionally compelling, period, is that it basically functions as an allegory for all of these different things simultaneously. So people have kind of been talking about how it's an allegory for therapy and also for addiction and then also kind of the gentrification stuff that we just mentioned. And I generally find allegorical stories not super interesting, but because this is operating on all of those different levels, that sort of catapults it into a different region for me because yeah. it's not simple And also kind of the only one
1: of those that it's really explicit about is the kind of the main characters, obviously both of their kind of mental health issues and Nadia's kind of memories of her mother and all the guilt she feels about thinking that she's abandoned her mother as a child, which obviously she was a child. So like, you can't really abandon your mother. But that stuff's all kind of quite explicit, whereas kind of the idea of addiction, the show is actually not sort of like, oh, drugs are bad. It's more sort of like she she takes a lot of recreational drugs but that's not sort of critiqued by the show and in fact it kind of takes a long time for the show to really reveal what her issues are and how miserable she actually is because the character is so cheery and lively but um kind of you gradually begin to realize that like because she's like hiding you know she's hiding her unhappiness like so many people do you can't really tell until later on in the show what that problem is and I think one of the kind of interesting like revealing things that you see from her social circle is that she is acting like very weird throughout this show obviously because she's stuck in the middle of a time loop and in pretty much every loop where she does something really weird her friends just sort of go along with it clearly because her behavior is already so erratic that they're just like well Nadia's just being Nadia kind of thing whereas Alan's thing is that like literally no one is even noticing what he's doing because he only has one friend and he is like alone in his like weird sad apartment all the time
0: yeah i hadn't thought about the addiction thing really at all because as you say it's not explicitly discussed and then i read an interview with Natasha Leone, who in her actual life had serious substance abuse problems and like came quite close to dying a couple of times which i think is where the genesis of this show was and she was talking about the sort of parallels between her experiences of addiction and then what's going on with the show and it became really interesting to me to think about it that way because as the show is going on the world is kind of deteriorating which you mentioned at the beginning but one of the ways that that becomes apparent is that she keeps having to endure this party over and over and over again but the number of people there keeps diminishing. Yeah. Um and the world is kind of falling apart and she keeps sort of repeating the same thing over and over and it seems like she can't do anything about it. And obviously that you know very closely mimics people's experience with addiction is yeah. that you sort of drive people away from you, right? And just the same thing happens over and over and over again. I mean, I
1: think we're we're definitely in spoiler territory now, so like listeners yeah. who really want to not know about the ending Tune out now, yeah. But um, yeah, like that kind of the sec towards the end was when it suddenly became like so much more alarming to me because it's just so upsetting to see her kind of because like you've got this rhythm set up, right? And obviously, the best way to introduce conflict into that rhythm is to have stuff suddenly start to change when you're when the characters are already. Like, so out of control, and they think they finally managed to find a way to control the situation. And the way they do that is like every time she resets, there's just, as Morgan said, there's fewer people at the party. Like, objects start vanishing from her and Alan's houses. And also, kind of, they seed that in quite early with them. Um, sort of plants and food start to rot. So it's kind of like the real world somewhere is still continuing on in the same timeline. But the only way the main characters are experiencing it is through this just like decay. And it's just it's just so alarming. And I wasn't really thinking about it through addiction. I was just thinking about it more in the sense that it's like the characters are very explicitly meant to be like depressed and anxious. And it's sort of like they are not kind of reaching out and kind of trying to find help. And they're obviously they're kind of on the surface seem like they're dealing with it, but obviously they're not. And that kind of deterioration is like the, the allegorical way they're portraying that on screen. Yeah. But I mean, it works for both like really well, I think.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think even the therapy stuff, even though that's more explicitly alluded to, and obviously it is very clearly a show about trauma and is, you know, Nadia has partially been raised by a therapist, like it's obvious that they're engaging with this. It's not just the sort of surface level stuff that's being talked about in the show textually. The whole thing is kind of a metaphor for that, too, in a way that I found really interesting. So these two people who don't know each other at all get pushed into this situation where they're having to talk to each other over and over and over and over again, right? With no outside context. And it keeps happening over and over and over again. It's the same thing, which if any of you have ever been in therapy, let me tell you, you just have the same conversations about your parents over and over and over and over again for years. Like, it's just the same shit. And that's basically what is happening in the show, is that they're, like, stuck in this situation with a stranger trying to, like, fix their problems. And as the old cliche goes, it's often easier to talk to someone who you don't know about your problems than someone you do. And um, and he's terrified of going to therapy, and they do actually try to have him go to therapy, like, once and it does not work in the show. But essentially what they are doing is the sort of non-therapy version of therapy in this situation. And I found that really, really interesting because they have both the textual and the subtextual engagement with that process, which seemed to me really smart in a way that I hadn't really seen depicted before. I always hate bad depictions of therapy Uh, media there are many and this didn't go for the explicit depiction of that but it was more about it in a thematic way in a way that clearly understood what it was talking about and I thought that was really really smart
1: and also had a really good kind of restricted use of actually discussing and showing Nadia's mother on screen Um, Mm because they have like it's kind of like a a fun but horrifying cameo role for Chloe Savigny plays her mother in so sort of flashbacks good. in the past in the last few episodes, and kind of you know from earlier on that her mum wound up in a mental institution and died when Nadia was relatively young and left her with this therapist friend who essentially became her surrogate mother, like as an adult. And then when you kind of flash back, uh, like Chloe Sivigny's behavior is like so clear, like kind of the the like impact that it had on Nadia's life, but also kind of the, the whole show taking place on Nadia's 36th birthday it's like that's the point where her mother died so she's got her mother on her mind but also like the showrunners chose 36 really specifically which I found interesting I think there was some interview where someone asked either Natasha Leon or Leslie Headland, like why didn't you have this character be 40 because it's more of an obvious midlife crisis time And they were like, obviously, because she's a woman, because at 36, that's kind of the cutoff where people start to be really serious about like, when are you going to have kids? And obviously, Mm -hmm. this isn't a character who has any particular desire for children. But I think the point of that choice is that even if you're a woman who has no interest in children and doesn't have a partner, people are still like really invasive and weird about like, when are you going to have kids? Like the biological clock's ticking kind of thing.
0: That's interesting. I hadn't read that, but that makes sense. And there's a whole subplot with the guy she had been dating. I don't know if that's really the right word. He yeah, was she had like an affair
1: whatever. with an older man who was married and, they, and broke up his marriage. And he has a daughter who's like 12.
0: Yeah, and he keeps wanting her to meet the daughter and she really doesn't want to meet the daughter. And that's this whole sort of undercurrent running through mostly the first half of the show.
1: And sort of the conclusion of that storyline is her wanting to give this girl a, this book that was really meaningful to her when she was a kid. It's a book that's by the same author who write, wrote the Anne of Green Gables stories but it's sort of like a darker weirder take and a similar concept like it's about a girl who's an orphan and was adopted by some sort of distant relatives but she's a lot more serious and sort of morbid.
0: Yeah and then when she finally does wind up giving it to her the girl kind of turns into herself as a child that's this whole Symbolic thing.
1: The last couple of episodes get very freaky. Yeah, I was I was really like alarmed and upset for the last couple of episodes. So I'm glad that the ending is happy.
0: <laughs> well, I will. Before we get to, just to the end, I do want to say the one thing I thought about this show that I wish they had done differently was that Nadia gets a lot of backstory with her mother, and you really understand why she is the way that she is, and. Alan, they make no effort to do any of that at all. And it's very clear just from watching him behave that he has a lot of anxiety, (laughs) right? And, like, you find out that the first time he died, he committed suicide. So, obviously, he has a lot of mental health problems. And... Of course, many people who suffer from serious mental health disorders, it it's a biological thing. It's not like it's inflicted upon you by your childhood. But also, usually, there's some combination of factors going on there, right? And they don't really go into any of that with him. There's one scene with his mother, and that's it. I kind of wondered whether they had shot more with her and then cut it, because it felt like a sort of strange thing to only have one scene with this character's mom and then and honestly, else. like Honestly, I
1: feel like it, it was fine because, like, the show is so succinct, and they. I feel like because the because Nadia is the protagonist, I didn't really feel the need to find out more about Alan's backstory because it was like he was kind of secondary, even though by the end they are kind of equal figures.
0: I feel like they turn basically into co-equal protagonists by pretty quickly after he shows up, and it wasn't like I needed to have. Massive, extensive flashbacks about everything that was going on with him. But there are a few allusions that I think mostly his girlfriend makes to his issues that felt slightly... I was like, wait, but we don't know what's happening with him. And I realized a couple episodes in to him showing up that I had in my brain assumed... Which was hilarious because this is not in the show at all. But he's like quite muscular, and also his posture is really good, and he has very short hair. And I had literally turned him into a veteran in my mind, even
1: though that's not in the show. Oh no, I thought he was. I thought he had like a workout eating eating disorder where he was just obsessed with physical control. <laughs> well,
0: this is the thing, right? It's like they didn't give you anything. And so I had done that in my brain just because he has the kind of, he kind of looks like it. And I was like, wait, I've made that up. (laughs) Like, that's, I've completely fabricated that. And even if there had just been one or two scenes or just, like, a few lines, I think I would have appreciated that a lot and I think that would have made the show stronger. It's still totally emotionally affecting and the end is really satisfying. But I think that could have been improved in that way. That being said, the end is very good. And... I thought just like narratively very ingenious. I didn't know how they were going to do it. And then when they did, it felt totally perfect to me. Basically what happens is that they realize that the reason they're sort of tied together is that they both sort of cross paths in this bodega. And then they wind up on kind of separate tracks where one of each of them knows everything that has happened and then has to deal with the other person who's still on the original timeline set to die and has to save their lives. And they sort of cut back and forth between these two stories. It winds up being much more optimistic than I had necessarily anticipated. Obviously it's doing Groundhog Day. And so of course she slash they have to figure out what's, What's happening? Like it would be so cruel to the audience if it just ended with them still like dying over and over again. that would just be so awful. But even so, it it was just very, very um, humanistic in a way that was a little bit surprising to me, given the fact that the tone of the show, certainly at the beginning, is pretty gritty. But also Amy Poehler is one of the creators, so I guess I should have anticipated that this was the direction.
1: I mean, I hadn't really considered that they might have like a really dark ending because the show is quite comedic and it felt like they were really propelling to a direction where the main characters would have to recover in some way. But I just found the ending really unexpected because there's sort of, in a time loop story, there's like, you think there's a relatively limited number of ways they can end it. And they found just a really refreshing, interesting and sort of shocking way to have the final episode Like work out and have it still be a really interesting conceit.
0: Yeah, it was not something I had seen before. The end of Groundhog Day, because it's just one person, he just kind of eventually has to not be an asshole. I don't remember exactly the details, but it's, you know, he has to figure out to not be a dick to people. Like That's essentially the message of Groundhog Day, is you start with someone who's just an absolute asshole and slowly improves himself, whereas this is a little bit different because it's not like they're horrible people. They are just have problems. And the moral they have to learn is not to, you know, not treat other people horribly. It's to have some self-awareness and value their own lives. Yeah, I just thought it was really ingeniously done, and I don't understand why they're going to do more of it because I... It, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Cuz it doesn't it's not about the plot or the mechanics of this. I mean I like, genuinely can't you know, see how
1: they can have a second season because they have concluded the time loop now. And if they get stuck in another time loop it's like why? But also if they right. do it with separate characters then you're going to lose. Which, yeah, I mean, also who cares, right? Because it's like, because the whole, like Natasha Leon is like the center, the heart of the show. So I don't know, like, I feel like they're geniuses. So maybe they'll just surprise me because I'm just a dummy and I don't know how to write a TV show. But I'm also kind of like, how can you follow
0: this up? It's a mystery. (laughs) I mean, it's not like doing another
1: season of Stranger Things where it's a continuing forward-facing narrative.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's bizarre because it is so... Unusual to have an ending this good in any form of storytelling. Endings are really hard. And if you nail the dismount this successfully, you should just bask in that and do something else. <laughs> do something else with the same cast, right? Just tell a different story. Also with these actors. That's fine. I would yeah. watch that, right?
1: Put them all in a spaceship or something. You know. Right.
0: Always, always a spaceship. I'm always up for
1: that. Have Greta Lee play like an 18th century witch instead of yelling sweet birthday baby 55 times.
0: (laughs) She did a great job of varying that delivery every time.
1: So I read an interview with her, which was literally like one of the first questions was like, what was it like to have to just say the same fucking line over and over again? And she did consider not taking the role because she was just like, this is just going to be awful. Because she does say it like different ways each time. But I just feel like she is... And also because she has quite a memorable face. I feel like people are going to just yell at her in the street for just years to come. Like, sweet birthday baby!
0: (laughs) I don't know, because she's styled very distinctively in the show.
1: I mean, yeah, she has really distinctive makeup and stuff. But I feel like I would recognize her. Like, I, I recognized her from seeing her in one episode of The Good Fight.
0: Yes, but I think if she goes out wearing, like, a big hat in the winter and, like, a big coat, I think she will probably be okay. That's my suspicion, but maybe not this next couple of months. <laughs> 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 the next couple months she's probably going to get shouted at. And then maybe not so much anymore. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's any, anything we've missed, any little details. It's just, it's great. Everything about it is great. There's a lot we could have gone into and didn't. There's a cat named Oatmeal. I mean, perfect. Perfect. I loved it. You should definitely watch it if for some reason you are still listening to this and have not seen the show. It's four hours. An excellent length of time. And I actually got through it and it's a Netflix show which has happened like maybe four times ever.
1: Well it's what happens when like there's a bunch of cool good talented people make a TV show and it happens to be on Netflix as opposed to the Netflix production line of like random shit.
0: Right. Well so thank you as ever for listening this week. Next week We will be discussing James Cameron's The Abyss, which Gabia has watched and I have (laughs) not.
1: Such a random choice, but we were like, there's not any new releases next week and people will probably be sick of the Oscars, so (laughs) why not watch this 30 year old movie by James Cameron about going underwater for a long time?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be an adventure. It's like. It's a
1: blockbuster thriller in the vein of kind of. Armageddon, but less corny, crossed with Alien.
0: I mean, alright, we will see. It does start at Harris, whom I love. So that points in its favour.
1: Yes. And James Cameron, as you know, if you've listened to our iconic Avatar episode... We are intimately familiar with James Cameron's (laughs) amazing mind and spirit, and I feel like those are in full effect in their larval form in this movie, before Avatar truly took hold and did whatever it did to his brain.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so we'll be doing some armchair psychoanalysis next week. Can't wait. Uh, So come back for that. If you are not already subscribed to our Patreon, we put up an extra episode there last week, answering questions from readers. It was very fun.
1: Yeah, I pitched a historical sports movie based on one passage from Caesar's Gallic Wars. So that's some (laughs) bullshit.
0: And I talked about John Bernthal. So we covered. We really lived up to our stereotypes. It was great. And I also put up a post about. Classic film that I am recommending, and I am writing Oscar predictions for the weekend. So there's lots going on there. You can find that at www.patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast Gavia, where can our listeners find you?
1: You can find my writing at the Daily Dot. You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore
0: Taylor, and you can find me at ml Davies on Twitter. We would also greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast service you use. It really helps us find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, and on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.